0: Working on inner peace in a world of chaos and confusion, this is Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett. You can subscribe to my Substack at kevinbarrett.substack.com. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink, or eat anything. These, These are, are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome. This is the live edition of Truth Jihad Radio, the all out struggle for truth on the Internet airwaves. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting since 2006. I've been on a long list of networks. I was on Alex Jones's network. I was on the network founded by the founder of the Michigan militia and a lot of other networks. And now I'm happy here at Revolution Radio, where I bring on the best guests to talk about the things that you're not allowed to talk about at your mother's dinner table or on YouTube. I was just banned from YouTube. Uh, They took down not only my account but a family member's account where my stuff gets posted, and they even took down the account of the 501c3 religious nonprofit where I post my Friday khutbas or Islamic sermons. And the first one they censored, because I couldn't get into my account to post it today, was about mysticism. So when mysticism is outlawed, only outlaws will be mystics. And. <laughs> Tonight, we are going to talk a little bit about mysticism in the first hour, then move on to politics with Professor Tony Hall. But mysticism, what's that all about? A lot of people uh, think it's mysterious. It has that mist in it. It's very misty and foggy and uh, difficult to understand what in the heck those people are talking about. I don't know. Actually, it might actually be pretty simple. And one of the people who communicates most eloquently about the basic simplicity of mysticism, which is the living heart at the core of all of the revealed religions, is Greg Levey of the Spiritual Secrets Substack. And I just heard him, so he's online with us. It's time to welcome him. Hey, welcome, Greg. How are you?
1: Oh, well, fine, Kevin. It's nice to be here with you today.
0: Yeah, wonderful to have you. So it's actually really nice to get a chance to talk about something other than horrible political problems. And- <laughs> hideous uh ongoing events and so on uh and so this is really kind of a treat for me to uh to be able to talk with you because you're you're, you know you write very beautifully about mysticism and maybe you can introduce yourself uh your bio that you give is very concise and quite tantalizing you've had 50 years of intense meditation 40 years of teaching meditation methods and then You say you've invented a couple of uh, important devices, uh, which I couldn't find anything about that anywhere on the Internet. (laughs) I guess that's all been erased from the Internet, too, just like my YouTube channel. So anyway, go ahead and introduce yourself.
1: (laughs) Yeah, my name is Greg LeVay. Kevin, I was luckily blessed with an ability to um, rest in a clear awareness, to walk through life in a clear awareness. And I didn't even know what it was uh, as a youth. But, clear, every single person on Earth has has a powerful set of capabilities that emerge after we let go of our attachments to trains of thought and emotions. Thoughts and emotions fragment, and clutter our awareness by distracting the attentive power of awareness. And so when we stop grabbing at thoughts and patterns, we discover our true awareness, which is a God-given blessing, no matter how you describe God. And so I, I was born with uh, not complete uh mystic awareness, but enough awareness that it molded my entire life. I was always able to, uh, I, I've witnessed, witnessed so many miracles in life, I just can't even count them. In high school, I would often just float in this awareness. I'd, you know, I had, my friends had to walk with me and make sure I didn't walk into the walls. But I would sit down for a test in calculus. It's supposed to be a one-hour test, and I wouldn't think. I sometimes even wouldn't even read the questions. I would simply write down the answers, and on many occasions, they was Ph.D. level math. When I took the SAT, which, as you know, is about a four-hour test in America, and most people never finish all of the questions, By relying on this mystic power that's within every single one of us, by simply trusting in it, letting it flow, letting it do its thing, I never read a single question on the SAT. I would simply look at the group of A, B, C, D, E, and F types of answers, and the correct number or letter would... uh, Lift up off the page, almost like four uh, d now
0: changing, is that considered, is that considered cheating?
1: <laughs> you know it's a god-given gift, so how can we be cheating if we're using our god given gifts to for the betterment of the world you know and and and, that's, and that leads to the uh, situation with my inventions and not claiming them. By the way, I pay, placed about ninth in the nation that, on that SAT. Um, big Deal. When I went into the, I was I was employed by Microsoft Data Science um, Mohawk Data Sciences as a programmer in 1972, leading to the spreadsheet. A salesman came up to me, Roger, and said, "Greg." Um, we've got this client in Lansing and I want you to write a program for him. And I said, fine, Roger, which system? And he said, the new 2300. I said, I'm not familiar with the 2300. What is it? He says, I don't know, but it's in Tom's office. whose office was right next to mine. And I said, when is the program due? He says, it's due in a week. I said, so let me go talk to Tom. So I talked to Tom and I said, what's this 2300? And he says, it's over there on that um, crate. It's a, Pallet with the metal um, bands around the crate, I says, "Oh, Roger wants me to write a program for it." And he says, "That's impossible." And I said, "Why? Well, there's no operating system, and there's no programming languages, and it only has a few uh, bytes of memory." I says, "What is it?" He says, "It's a microprocessor." Apparently, it was the first microprocessor ever invented. It was designed uh, partially by Gene Amdahl himself. And um, so he said, go tell Roger it's impossible. So I walked outside to tell, talk to Roger. My intuition is saying it's totally possible. Don't worry about it. So Roger says, can you write this program? And I said, sure, no problem. Walked into my office feeling the presence, a very strong presence of this God-given power that's within every single one of us, locked my door, sat down to meditate, and like sujut or like any uh, sacred prayer to the divine, I simply let my awareness melt into that divine awareness at whatever level of divinity I'm ready for it. And so I opened my eyes about eight hours after I sat down to meditate, and there was a tray of punched cards on my desk and about 100 pages of typed instructions which defined a brand-new operating system. My door is still locked from the inside. There's no punch card machines in the building. So I called up the airlines, made some... um, Mm -hmm airline travel uh, request for, you know, for tickets to fly to Lansing so I could deliver the program on Friday. This was Monday night. But all I have is the operating system. But I trusted the divine. So I went home, had dinner with my family, took them out to the movies, came back the next day, sat down, meditated, uh, opened my eyes at around 5 p.m. And the first tray was full of cards partially into the second tray of metal, uh, metal tray. The door was still locked from the inside out. And now there was some printed documentation on a uh, machine code language from which you can build other applications. Very nice. So went home, played with the kids, had dinner, came home the third day with some travel bags, meditated, finished my meditation, the second metal tray is now full of punch cards and it has instructions for basically the very first, the invention of the microcomputer spreadsheet. Flew, the, flew to my, um, flew to the Lansing office so that I could compile the program. Um, the compile, uh, went perfectly. If you know anything about writing Developing operating systems and programs in the 60s and the early 70s, typically you don't get a perfect compile for several months. If you're developing an operating system, typically it'll take a year or two to, to write all the code and get a clean compile. I got a clean compile in a few minutes. Wow. With full faith in the divine, I threw away the punch cards and took the tape with me. Went to the customer site, got a call from the executive in the morning, in the evening, when I got into uh, Lansing. And he said, Greg, we've changed the schedule a little bit. You've got to make a presentation to the executives. This was the welfare department for the state of Michigan. And I said, fine. I said, but I don't have any foils with me. Can I come into your office and make some foils? He says, yes, I'll call up the guard and have them you know, fire up the machines for you and get an office that you can work out of. I said, "Great." Went to the office, had the guard lead me to a spare room. You can guess what I did next: locked the door, I meditated all night. Came and in the morning, when I opened my eyes, I had um, 35 black and white handouts for the executives and the uh, the crew that was going to uh, run the program. And I had a whole series of black and white transparencies. I still hadn't read all the documentation, mind you. Walked in, gave a presentation by flipping over the charts and reading what was on the chart that I had never seen before. I installed the program, and of course it ran perfectly the very first time and never, ever went down for another two and a half years. It never went down. They finally changed the machine and had to rewrite. Someone else had to rewrite the program. So how, how did your
0: colleagues react to this?
1: <laughs> I learned some hard lessons. The, that's a good question. The VP of engineering, uh, was uh, he was a mix of emotions. He was furious that I had done this when it was supposed to be impossible. But he had been talking to the customers in Lansing, and they said it worked perfectly. So he had uh, formed a kangaroo court, if you would, of the the other directors in the engineering department, and they called me up on the phone. So they're grilling me on the phone, trying to figure out how I did all this. And I didn't want to tell them the truth, because in those days, it was just an unacceptable uh, phenomenon in the Western world. If I'd have been born in India, there wouldn't have been such a phone call.
0: Yeah here here, here okay. you have to get into you have to get into an altered state of consciousness to your your coding by eating pizza all night and, and drinking soft drinks or something, I guess. I've
1: done that routine as well.
0: Yeah, <laughs> well, I think case, meditation it, sounds better.
1: Yes, yeah, it does. So in this in this instance they were grilling me and then the president of the company, I think Mr. Reifenberg, came in and he said, quote unquote, I don't give a flying F how he wrote this program. You idiots have been working on, on the operating system for over two years. You still haven't delivered it. And this kid did it in, in less than two weeks, send him every computer we've got, hire a couple of people to help him and give him a raise. And he walked out the door. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's, that's a reasonable reaction. I think so. Um, I think uh, so too. Yeah. So, so... so that,
1: that taught me to, um, Keep most of these things secret, keep the miracles secret as they happen, so I did
0: uh-huh. that's interesting you know my my wife um you know comes from a Moroccan Muslim background with some sort of healing and you know mystical stuff in in the culture, and also suggests that keeping not talking too much about um veridical dreams and uh, things like this is usually the best policy. Um, is, do, do you still follow that? Because you seem to be very, very open about all of your mystical practices today.
1: Well, what I've learned from dozens of other mystics in, in Buddhism and, and Sathamad and other faiths is that you should actually keep everything inside until the wisdom is overflowing, until you get to the point where you experience about everything that can possibly be experienced and then it's your, it's your responsibility to teach. And that's basically where I'm at right now. I have experienced uh, so many blessings. So I've had so many blessed meditations and experiences. And and I would go through the trouble to uh, revisit every single meditation I had and then play it back in slow-mo so that I could examine all of the characteristics of every single experience. And I did that because I realized by my uh, late 20s and early 30s that that was going to be my role in life. So I kept most everything under the cover until about four or five years ago, and then it was time to start teaching, and that's what I've been doing.
0: Uh, Are there people from your past who were involved with your uh, career? that who have sort of had an inkling of what was going on and 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 that leads to the question of how your former colleagues have reacted now that you've kind of come out as a mystical teacher I,
1: you know i haven't kept in touch with them but let's address the first part of your question first when i was at itt um and i could see Believe it or not, I'm 32 years old. I had seven corporations reporting to me, about 20,000 employees, and an annual budget of $1.5 billion. I would go through long meditation periods where I would sit down to meditate. And when I woke up, it was months later. Then I would, my wife would just freak out. i go into office not knowing whether or not I still worked there. And they say, oh, Greg, what you did last month was absolutely brilliant or whatever. And so I'd have to bring my employees together, have them discuss their accomplishments over the last period of time so that I could make recommendations on promotions and salaries and so forth and so on. So I constantly had to do that type of thing in the in the executive circles. Um, but I had something like 350 different PhD-level scientists reporting to me. Um, I was in charge of the... one of the people in charge of creating the project um, to, to um, actually produce the first working smartphone and the PBXs that would manage the network for that smartphone. I had invented the concept earlier in about 1978 when I was consulting at IBM. So, um, anyway, I was in charge of that project. Several of the Indian PhDs that were there, raised, uh, raised in India and then uh, came over to the United States to work in the technology labs of different companies, noticed that I could pretty much talk on any subject almost immediately, and I, I'm guessing they were looking
0: at my eyes and my demeanor
1: and they realized that if i was born in india they probably have a different um, uh, way of looking at me so they asked me if i could give a presentation um on tuesday about some of the technologies they put together a group and i said sure i'll come by and give a presentation so i walked in thinking i was going to have to give a presentation on um how to handle um multi-digital type of um, uh, energy patterns. And I had written some of the code on, on the first uh, ITT internet type of uh, capability. But instead, the room was filled with um, quantum physics, physicists. And they wanted my opinion on the Big Bang and the effect it had on creation of new dimensions and planets not being well-versed in it, uh, I did exactly, you know, I I ended up doing exactly what I did when I had to invent the spreadsheet. I basically bow my consciousness, melt my consciousness in uh, an effortless prayer to the divine. And I ended up giving a talk on quantum physics. I had the same issue when I was supposed to be the keynote speaker at Intel once. They wanted a presentation on semiconductor design. I'm not an engineer. I don't know semiconductor design. But I ended up giving the presentation to a round of applause. I had the same issue when I was asked to give the leading open presentation to the American Medical Association one year. I think it was a regional chapter. You know, in circumstances where the impossible is requested, if I intuitively feel that the divine wants me to do it anyways, I let the divine do it. I simply get out of the way, and I let the miracle happen as it's supposed to. I mean, the guy that ITT put my name on the patent for the smartphone I've never kept a copy. I've never tried to claim it. I never tried to claim the invention um, of the spreadsheet. I never tried to claim the invention of what became PowerPoint. Because to me, these were gifts from God. They're gifts from the divine for the sake of the rest of the planet. And um, that's enough. What more can I ask for? It's, it's, an, it's enough to be able to contribute in any way that anyone can contribute. If they are doing what they can for their family, for the brotherhood of man, um, that's enough. And they should be proud of uh, of their efforts in whatever they're doing. So at any rate, that mysticism is about Melting into the image of God consciousness that's inside of you, pure and simple, and it's easy to follow. It seems like it might be hard, but all it really requires is an ability to totally relax, feel the feel the emptiness within your awareness. Let yourself melt to the center of it. And that thing that we call our soul will do everything else automatically for you. Because our soul is truly uh, an angel of God, a messenger of God, whatever you want to call it. But it does everything for us. And if we continue to have faith in the uh, spirit that's within us, it will eventually uh, take us all the way back to the very source of our divine celestial awareness. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and do you think that's really the content of revealed religions? It seems that way to me, and it seems that, that they have many of them have tended to move away from that and become bureaucracies, and how, how do we revitalize that within the revealed religious traditions?
1: That's a very, very, very good point. Um, I'm writing a book on ancient Taoism. I, ancient Taoism really started around 2400 BCE. You know, when I look at the patterns of what happened in Taoism, and I look at Christianity or Sant Mat or any other great religion, the same patterns have happened. What typically occurs is there's a mystic, a um, mystic, who is blessed when they're born and and i think that's because of previous lifetimes of a lot of hard work in terms of meditating but whether believe whether you believe in reincarnation or not most mystics that end up leaders of great paths. hello greg yeah
0: okay you're, you're back we you dropped for a second
1: oh okay um What happens with most great religions is there's a mystic that's born. And that mystic listens to the flow of divine awareness within within him or her. And eventually they reach source or celestial or divine consciousness, whatever you'd like to call it. And then they start, and then people ask them, what did you discover? How can we do the same thing? And then they... They create a methodology so that other people can find the clear awareness, the divine awareness within them. Um, but if no one else within their path um, reaches that same level of awareness, then eventually it will be interpreted from a literal standpoint instead of an experiential standpoint. Let me give you an example. When you reach the creative aspect of divine consciousness you don't really have even a smidgen of self perspective but what you are experiencing is the actual act of creation and you can literally experience how consciousness itself creates energy creates waveforms you can experience how that consciousness is still awake within the energy, still awake within space, still awake within waveforms. You can experience the creation of streams of energy that become molecules as they spin around. You can experience the creation of gravity centers at the middle of molecule, at the middle of uh, Planck areas of space. You can experience the creation of gravity that allows an atom to, uh, and a nucleus to uh,
0: to exist. Sounds like, sounds like physi- physicists ought to do this.
1: They, they should. It would be nice. You know, I've talked to a number of quantum physicists lately and I've asked them what the greatest area of intensive research is and um, a number of them, um, at least half of them, um, said so that we're trying to figure out what's in the middle of these vacuums in the smallest segments of space, what they call Planck, P-L-A-M-C-K space. And it's clear to uh, any really experienced mystics that the center of all of these tiny little bubbles of space is consciousness. The divine awareness, and you realize this in both the creative vortex or in the active aspect of the mind consciousness, it's constantly nurturing, loving, sustaining, regenerating every other aspect of consciousness in the cosmos. In the same way that the... uh, the heart of the mycelium network of a mushroom, in other words, the roots and branches of a mushroom, loves, nurtures, and sustains, constantly loves, nurtures, and sustains, and regenerates every single aspect of the network. And the network of mycelium has tens of thousands of endpoints. And the same thing happens in consciousness. When we get into the causal plane, which is a little bit beyond the physical body, what we experience is the ability to be conscious in multiple different locations at the same time. Eventually, instead of just being in five or six or seven locations at the same time, we can be in ten, and then a hundred, and then a thousand. And as our consciousness is when it gets to the point where it's in a thousand or more locations, we begin to notice that the center of the consciousness, of every other bubble of consciousness that we're connecting with, has the same divine consciousness that we have. And what happens is a flow of divine love back and forth between every single bubble of consciousness and every other single bubble of consciousness. So what happens is every single aspect of consciousness is loving, nurturing, and sustaining every other bubble of consciousness that it is um, connected to, interconnected to. That's just the way it is. So when you get to the... Source consciousness, or celestial consciousness at the center of the cosmos, this is a, it's an indescribable experience, and, you know, you can only remember bits and pieces of it, but it's a consciousness that's interconnected to countless numbers of other states of consciousness in 360 degrees of direction. And it's loving, nurturing, sustaining every other consciousness that it's connected to. And every consciousness that it's connected to is doing the same thing with every other consciousness connected to it. We really are, I believe, made in the image of God consciousness.
0: Sounds like a kind of a fractal pattern.
1: It is. It is a fractal pattern because it repeats itself, repeats itself, repeats itself. We're made as humans, but think about what happens between the organs and the cells and the molecules of our body. Every organ is in communication with every other organ of the body. Every organ in the body is loving and nourishing and sustaining and regenerating every molecule within that organ. And there, it's a communications network within the body that interconnects every molecule within the body. Even if you're just an early stage meditator, if you've done just a little bit of meditation and you reach the eye center, which is right behind your uh, two eyes, call it third eye, when you reach that level of consciousness, you'll feel a tingling in your eye center. And the minute you feel the tingling in your eye center, it's because that energy center, which we call a chakra, is expanding in size. And so your skin ripples a little bit and you feel the tingling. But the amazing thing about that experience is the fact that the eye center then sends a signal, electromagnetic signal to the the heart center and to the crown chakra center at the top of your head, and they begin to open at the same time. And then those centers send, as you can guess, electromagnetic signals to other areas of body of your body, which also begin to uh, tingle, <laughs> and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. So again, the human body is a... And the way that consciousness works in the human body, it's a fractal copy of the way that consciousness works from the heavens outward. It's a fractal copy that we see in mushrooms. It's a fractal copy that we see in trees. It's a fractal copy that we see in flowers. It's a fractal copy that we see throughout the entire universe. It gets repeated and repeated and repeated again. So the heart of just about everything that exists is a fractal copy of divine consciousness.
0: And that's a a wonderful uh, piece of, of knowledge, and people can be taught things like this as sort of rational statements that can become dogmas, and then they can experience them. And I think to greater or lesser extents, I mean, a great many people have some of these kinds of experiences. Maybe everybody does. I don't know. I, sh- I sure have. <laughs> uh But, you know, like in, in the Rumi poems where he is close to Allah and then. Crashes down and finds himself in the tavern of ruin. You know, most people oscillate <laughs> between these states, uh, these these yeah. you know these experiences, and then sort of the tawdry reality of the uh, you know sort of the material space time continuum where you're stuck in one body and one ego, and that ego wants all this stuff. It's self aggrandizing, and you're you know you have all these kind of base desires, and you have a society around you of people full of base desires and self aggrandizing egos. And so there's that dialectic, really, between these experiences, you know, whatever level they're, you're having them, and and then this, you know, the, the mundane reality. And I wonder, what are your thoughts about that and sort of what role does mundane reality and then all of the negativity that's in mundane reality play? And, even, you know, there might even be negativity beyond mundane reality in terms of some cosmic forces that are actually not uh, you know, kind of blocking us, really, and messing with us, trying to prevent us from uh, having these kinds of experiences. So, what, what what is the is that relationship between these kinds of experiences and the mundane realities and the negative forces?
1: That's an absolutely superb question. I wish I get questions like that more often. <laughs>
0: Thanks.
1: It's it's a divine game of hide and seek, which when we fall out of grace, when we lose our connection with the divine, it's like leaving paradise and walking into a sewer. And we have no one to blame but ourselves. And like you, I love the poems of Rumi and Hafiz and Ibn Arabi and so many other great Sufis because they talk about this same issue that you just questioned about When we fall out of grace, when we fall out of our divine awareness, it's usually because we're not quite ready for the new level of divine awareness that we're in. We are too easily fall into wow moments. So, you know, another word for it is spiritual pride. You or you may not have the power of concentration. We basically go into greater stages of awareness when our soul is ready for that awareness. Sometimes it simply isn't ready. There's, the way I look at it, there's nothing, there's no negatives in any religion, to any religion, or to practice any religion or any faith. I think we are all attracted to the religions or faiths or practices that we're ready for, that our soul is hungry for. And when we reach a point where we're not getting anything magical out of the practice that we're following, whether that be prayer or going to church or going to a temple or meditating, it doesn't matter. When we're happy with it and it's enriching our lives, there's no reason not to continue. But if our soul gets, if and when our soul gets to a point where it wants more, when it wants to be closer to the divine, it will grow tired of the practices that we're currently practicing in the world. And then when we give in to the desires of our soul, which is simply to look inward, to look inward, where the divine presence exists and where the divine, from whence the divine presence expresses itself. When we start to pay attention to that, then we start to melt into that divine life force, that divine spirit. But, Sometimes we we're filled up. Hafiz and Rumi quite often talk about how they sometimes are filled to the brim from drinking the divine wine. And then, like drunkards, they fall asleep. They're talking about this same issue. They're talking about the fact that they weren't ready to be able to handle that much of the divine presence We have to always get to the point where we love the divine essence at the same level, the same frequency, and with the same devotion that the divine presence is currently loving us. When we're not loving back with the same effort, with the same faith, with the same effortless divine love, and then we're pushed out of that divine presence so that we can see our faults, so that we can discern and figure out what we're doing wrong in life. I had been deep inside one time and had lost that connection, this very deep level of, of spiritual awareness. And uh, a friend of mine said, let's go down and and, uh, I want to go to Santa Barbara and want to listen to a Buddhist presentation. I said, okay. I didn't know who was presenting, but I said, okay. And we're sitting there in the front row and it just happened to be Thich Nhat Hanh. Beautiful, beautiful Buddhist. It's a shame he's not with us. Uh, He's with us in spirit, but not in physical body. And he's given this presentation and I... I'm at that state he just talked about before where part of me grieves not being able to reconnect at the level of divine awareness that I had just recently witnessed about a week ago. And he stopped in the middle of his presentation, walked over to me, looked me in the eyes and said, sometimes the hardest part of any practice is when you lose connection with you lose your ability to be where you were. Recently, but all you have to do is relax, have faith, and it will happen again. So, when I stopped worrying, it did happen again. And so, this is the game of hide and seek that the divine plays with our soul when we start to get deep inside. It'll shower us with grace, it showers us with love, and we literally get drunk on that love in the sense that the bliss is so great uh, it overwhelms us and when we wake up we realize we're not in that same level of divine awareness that we were in before but if we practice again if we get at it again and Hafiz and Rumi and Omar Khayyam would simply say go back my friend go back to the tavern Taste the wine again, drink the wine again
0: and, and by that's that's beautifully put and and by persisting in this, are we mainly dealing with our own uh, spiritual state, or is there a spillover effect into somehow uh enlivening or improving the world around us, which of course, currently seems in terrible shape, and that's the focus of most of what I do here on the radio show. Uh, so, what, what's the relationship between this uh, consciousness uh, mysticism within within ourselves, and then this uh, this social world we inhabit that seems seems to be spinning towards uh, actually chaos? I think is is a, an unfair term. It's kind of a unfair to the word chaos to describe what's going on in the world today. It's <laughs> chaos.
1: Yeah, it's, it is, isn't it? The easiest way to explain it is to take a look at what happens in any church or temple when the priest or the rabbi um, or the prophet is giving a beautiful sermon it's uplifting everyone feels it in their heart, and as they feel it the the beauty in the air the energy in the air the the divine the feeling of divine presence in the air increases and increases and increases and sometimes people start talking in tongues or they fall down in tears of bliss and joy you know it it, it happens in churches it happens in huge satsangs it happens in spiritual podcasts or whether it's a Christian podcast or uh, any other type of podcast and any other type of religion, when people come into an arena, a podcast or a temple or a, a, a mosque, if they come into an arena and everyone is walking in with a sense of love in their hearts for the divine, just a sense of love, pure love, it affects everyone else everyone else can, will they have greater and greater experiences in those environments than they will when they step out of the church or out of the mosque or out of the temple or out of the ashram into the world. But they'll also carry that sense of divine awareness with them, and it will affect other people. It will cause other people to slow down and they'll sense the divine presence in the air, not necessarily from the other person, but they'll sense the stillness and the beauty in the air, and so it does affect them now if you one of the other things that I experienced in the past is Buddha's white skeleton methodology um, he taught this methodology you know, 400 BC, or whatever it was. And he taught his advanced disciples to put their awareness into this tiny little molecule in the big toe, on the left foot. And as you pour your love into it, you eventually can feel the consciousness that's there in that tiny little molecule. And as you pour your love into it, you can sense the orange. In other words, the field of electromagnetic illumination. And when you first start pouring your love into that molecule, it's a tiny little spark. It's a tiny little bubble of light. But Buddha would have us do that for hours on end. And eventually, the, that field or aura, that illuminated field of awareness And I don't mean illuminated. You could see it with your visible eyes. It would grow as big as an orange from a tiny molecule. Any mystic will tell you the same thing. Anyone that's gone deep past the eye center will tell you the same thing. When they're walking around in the daytime in a heightened level of awareness, the air itself is brighter than it normally is. And the Wu Wei, on the path of Wu Wei or the path of Christ Christ consciousness or Buddha consciousness or Krishna consciousness, you learn to float through the world beyond our dualities, beyond fears and uh, desires, beyond uh, notions of existence and non-existence, beyond the wars and state of peace, you float beyond dualities. You float beyond taking sides. And as you do that, if you're consciously aware, if you're at the eye center or deeper, the area in front of you is a bright white light. And following the path, the inner path, following the middle way, as the Taoist called it, following Muhammad in the time of Muhammad, meant walking into the light, literally walking into the light that you could see once you become aware.
0: Allahu nuru Samawati Wal al-art. God is the light of the heavens and the earth.
1: Yes, yes, exactly right. It is the light of the heavens and the earth, and sometimes you can see it on earth with your physical eyes.
0: Well, we only have about uh, seven or eight minutes left. And and I did want to ask you about your latest essay, a very beautiful essay that touches on many things. And you pose this question, which is probably relevant to those of us in the alternative media world. Are you in a state of spiritual peace or or are you in a state of opposition to one thing or another? And as I wrote to you, um, in Islam, we have to command the right and forbid the wrong or command the good and forbid the evil. And if we see something wrong, we have to change it with our hand. And if we can't do that with our tongue, and if we can't do that, we have to hate it with our heart, which is the least of faith. So in a sense, we're commanded to be in opposition to the evil that we encounter. And there is a lot of evil around these days, if you probably have noticed. So uh, so how, is, 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 this, is there an opposition between being in a state of spiritual peace and a state of opposition to evil or on the contrary in my experience if i don't oppose evil when i should i i lose inner peace so on the other hand when i oppose evil sometimes i lose inner peace too so, so what's the solution to this conundrum
1: i think the solution to the conundrum is to realize that when we're not communing with the divine That's the greatest act of evil. That itself is the greatest act of evil. And, but, all we have to do is acknowledge it. Speak out for, about what it is, and how it affects us, and how it can help us. And in that way, you see, we're fighting that same evil wherever it exists. It's the source of all evil. Buddha, when he was talking, uh, and this is in the uh, Pali Canon, the Chronicles of Buddha and his teachings, he used to talk, he used to say quite frequently that the greatest single evil, the greatest single problem is ignorance, ignorance of the divine. And when we overcome that particular evil by if you would, facing it head on, looking it in the face, seeing it as an evil, calling it as an evil, but loving it as a gift. By loving it, despite the fact that it's an evil, by loving everything that is, as it comes to us, in whatever form it comes to us, we defeat evil. We defeat the greatest evil in man, which is ignorance of the divine.
0: Well, that's beautifully put. Uh, And sometimes it's much more natural and easy to to practice that than than other times, of course, Uh, at least for those of us who weren't born with your gift. I think we're all born with some gifts, but it sounds like uh, Mm -hmm. you've had uh, a an extra heavy <laughs> dose of, uh, the ability to, to travel, uh, this particular road. And now that you're sharing it with others and you're on the path of teaching it, how can people learn from you? They can read your spiritual secret substack, Of course, you have a podcast and, uh, are do you also do any in-person teaching?
1: Yeah. I, you know, I used to travel and do that, but t- since COVID, I had to do it through podcasts. I, I uh, I teach on both Saturday morning and Sunday mornings. I give spiritual podcasts to a small group, but uh, we get together every Saturday and Sunday, and sometimes I record them, and sometimes they end up showing up on Substack as well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, that's how I discovered you. It's uh, yeah. a, v- a wonderful the Substack. Other thing
1: I'm, yeah, the other thing I'm doing is I'm working on a series of books. The first book will come out in... January or February when um, Amazon finishes with it. And it's a it's a long, hard look at the very first path of consciousness on the face of the earth, the foulest path of divine consciousness that began around 2400 uh, BC. And that'll be followed by other books on uh, Wu Wei, on... Um, on how to practice divine consciousness and so forth and so on. And, you know, I can teach till I'm blue in the face, but the thing is people are waking up all over the planet. There's more NDEs. There's more people witnessing miracles than ever before. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. And many of them will discover if they're meant to, they'll discover my teachings and the teachings of other people are teaching the same thing. I'm not just the only one. There's others that are starting to come out and and teach about inner awareness and divine awareness and how to melt into it. So I think people will find these when they're meant to find these teachings and in the manner that they're meant to find these teachings and all I can do is follow the path that's right in front of me to the best of my ability and leave the rest to fate.
0: Do you think it's possible there could be a kind of a snowballing effect as the acceleration of people uh, learning these things uh, feeds on itself? And but uh, because I've, I've often thought the only solution to the situation we're in on this planet right now would be some sort of mass religious or spiritual awakening, and could that is, could that well, happen anytime soon?
1: Oh, i absolutely totally believe in it. You know the the result of all the chaos that's happening. I mean, the, on the surface, in the beginning, there's a lot of angst, a lot of fear uh, throughout the entire world, and it's, it's been relentless, and that's actually beneficial to people on the path. But even people that weren't on the path, they're, they're saying to themselves, the dream is broken. Where can I, how can I reach salvation? How can I find peace? How can I find true happiness? And they're starting to ask questions that they've never asked before, and as great at the centers of the population starts to ask these questions, ultimately that same or a high portion of that same population starts to look within themselves for answers. You don't know who to trust when you listen to a newscast. You don't know whether to trust the government or you will not uh, know whether to trust the alternative news. There's positives and negatives on both sides. There's, there's truths and untruths on both sides and if you spend your life just listening to the news instead of playing the divine game of head and play and seek, then you, you won't get any salvation. All you'll get is a series of jolts of fear and desire that do not take you anywhere. On the other hand, if you can learn to float through, I don't care whether it's with prayer or meditation, It will raise your own vibrations, and that will help raise the vibrations of the planet.
0: Well, I hope the listeners and the viewers at False Flag Weekly News, where we summarize the uh, horrific (laughs) 30 top news stories of the (laughs) week each week, they'll be able to float through it and come out a little bit higher than they were before. Okay, well, thank you so much, Greg LeVay. I I really appreciate your uh, amazing work, and I think you're marking up the absolute right tree. And God bless, and hope to talk again. Listen well, yeah, to is a revolutionary year freedom of the souls. And We'll be right back after this lesson.